Welcome to Acton Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. The conservative movement in America has always been evolving. From the old right of the progressive era to the conservative intellectual movement identified with William F. Buckley Jr. and National Review, to the Reagan Revolution, to today. The political right in America has changed with the challenges it has faced and with the context of the times in which it has existed. The current iteration of the conservative movement is today more nationalist, more populist, and more skeptical, if not opposed, to classical liberalism, liberal institutions, and free markets than ever before. At times, even expressing doubt or skepticism about the American founding itself. How did the conservative movement get here? Today, we talk with Matthew Continetti, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, about the history of the American conservative movement, its evolution into being dominated by nationalism and populism, and where it may be headed in the future. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash acton line. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. I'm joined today by Matthew Continetti. Matt is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, focused on American political thought and history, with a particular focus on the development of the Republican Party and the American conservative movement in the 20th century. He was also the founding editor and editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon. Prior to that, he was opinion editor at the Weekly Standard. Matt Continetti, welcome to Act in Line. Thanks for having me. So I heard a recent interview with you where you talked about the book you're working on, on the history of conservatism. And I've been myself reading through the George Nash book on the history of the American conservative movement. And you talked about how you've identified really four different conservative movements. And uh, when the book comes out, we'd love to have you on and do a real deep dive on the history of conservatism. Um, but for our audience, just so we can get to the kind of where conservatism is today, can you give a quick overview of these four conservative movements that you've identified? Sure. Uh, well, uh, the story I tell uh, in this book I'm writing uh, begins um, uh, basically uh, in the progressive era um, uh, with the Woodrow Wilson presidency. And uh, between that time, so let's just say 1917, the year that America enters World War I and becomes a, a world power, uh, and 2017, those are kind of the bookends of the project uh, I'm currently working on, uh, there are really kind of four rights during this period. Um, the first right I characterize as anti-statist and also anti-interventionist. So this was the right really um, beginning in the progressive era up through American entry into World War II uh, with the attack on Pearl Harbor. And so it was very kind of libertarian, free market, anti-statist, individualist, but also very much um, anti-interventionist, anti-war. America needs to avoid entanglement in European great power conflict 
and focus on um, preserving freedom and acting as a uh, emblem of freedom for the world uh, at home. Uh, so that was the first one. And, and like I say, that basically uh, ended uh, with the attack on Pearl Harbor. So, you know, within uh, days of the attack, uh, the America First Committee, which was widely popular. Um, for the first two years of World War II here in America, uh, basically disbanded. Um, and so that was the end of that first right. And the second right that came about was um, anti-statist, but it was also anti-communist. And so this is the right that we kind of uh, say was the beginning of the conservative intellectual movement or the conservative movement in America, because it's the right of William F. Buckley Jr. and the National Review. Um, Buckley, you know, refers to himself as an individualist in his first book, God of Man at Yale, 1951. But by the time he writes Up from Liberalism in 1959, he's a conservative. And, and so it, that's kind of, I think, uh, tracing that inflection from a foreign policy of anti-intervention, anti-war, to a foreign policy of really assertive anti-communism, not only at home, um, in terms of counter-subversion and support for the McCarthy hearing, hearings and um, various um, counter-subversive efforts in the U.S. Congress, but also abroad. And, you know, people forget that someone like Joe McCarthy was actually an internationalist in foreign policy, <laughs> supported NATO. He, was, he, he thought that we needed to be um, engaged in Europe to fight communism. So that's the second right. Uh, the third right, I kind of... Um, date with basically the period between 1976-1980, the, the ascent of Ronald Reagan in American politics. Now, what I call that right is basically pro-market and pro-democracy. It's not necessarily anti-status because Ronald Reagan's elected president, the Republicans capture the Senate for the first time since the Eisenhower era. Um, so you're in charge of the state. <laughs> it's hard to be anti-statist when you're in charge of the state. So how do conservatives deal with this reality? Well, they kind of change their tonalities to be more just pro-market, expanding markets, market freedoms, so less anti than pro. And that's also the same on foreign policy, because during this time, um, rather than being hardline anti-communists, which of course that, that, that was still a major part, the focus also begins to shift on creating and supporting what Reagan in his address to the British Parliament of Westminster in 1982 called the architecture of democracy, the infrastructure of democracy, I'm sorry, pro-democracy. So we're going to make, we're going to um, not only improve American security, um, but we're also going to improve the condition of the world by spreading American principles of democratic governance and free markets throughout the world. Um, and this, of course, is best represented by Francis Fukuyama's famous essay, The End of History, question mark. By the time it became a book a few years later, he had lost the question mark. It was the end of history. So that's number three. Uh, finally, I, I think we're in um, stage four, um, or uh, the fourth right. Stage four makes it sound more ominous. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Well, my, the nice thing about my story is it has a beginning, middle, and end. Um, <laughs> the, this right is uh, populist and nationalist. Now, there was always elements of populism and nationalism in the American right throughout all of these phases. Um, but I think you see here, um, beginning really in uh, the first glimmers of it are in 2008 with the selection of Sarah Palin as John McCain's running mate and the reaction to that among the grassroots. But continuing throughout the Obama years and, of course, culminating in Donald Trump's nomination 
and presidential victory. You see a right that is extreme. So what is populist? It's extremely anti-elitist. It's majoritarian. The majority they have in mind is basically the majority of um, conservatives or basically the majority of people who who were comfortable in the world in, in, in say, 30 years ago, in 1980, mm-hmm. when I was born. That's, that's, that's the people that, that, they, that um, the American right has in mind. Um, and then it's also nationalist. So the foreign policy can't, it's not really anti-communist because communism is not a global ideology in the way it was during the Cold War. Um, uh, but it's also not pro-democracy because uh, that is not a priority of Donald Trump. And so it, what it is, is nationalist. It's uh, looking out for America first, right? Trump appropriating the name of the committee uh, during the run-up to World War II. Um, it's going to be very unilateralist, so it doesn't care about uh, multilateral alliances or international institutions. Um, again, conservatives have always been skeptical of those things, but this new phase takes it to a different level, I think. Um, and it's going to you know, assert U.S. power, but for extremely narrow interests. Um, and, and then it's going to play up uh, the, this larger sense of national identity, not only vis-a-vis immigrants, um, but also um, against powers like China. So you mentioned that there's always been a populist element in the right, and we can you know, go back to Bill Buckley with the rather be governed by the first 500 names in the Boston Telephone Directory than by the faculty of Harvard University, which I always took to mean, you know, maybe he'd be more comfortable with Yale, but uh, then again, God and man at Yale probably tells you he wouldn't. So there's always this populist element in there. Uh, you mentioned the nomination of Sarah Palin. Do, do you really peg that as the transition point to when populism becomes more of a driving force in the American right? Or does it, you know, when, when does the transition period, I guess, between, you know, the third stage of the right and this current nationalist populist stage of the right begin? I think, I, I think the failures of the George W. Bush presidency um, in, in Iraq uh, and Afghanistan, and then having kind of the capstone to his presidency be the global financial crisis of 2008, that kind of like cleared the deck uh, in a way <laughs> of, of, um, of, I think Reaganism in a lot of ways. Um, and I'm a partisan of Reagan. So I say that sadly, um, uh, but also kind of uh, Bush's attempt at fusionism was, was called cat compassionate conservatism that kind of went with, with him. Um, so personal personality wise, I've always thought, and I wrote a book about Sarah Palin and the year after this election in 2009, it came out, I always thought Palin perfectly represented kind of the new constituencies of the American right. Um, you know, she was a mother um, of five. She was a Bible-believing Christian. She um, did not come up through the traditional merit, you know, uh, obsessed um, credentialing network of, of the Ivy Leagues and such. She did not live on the East Coast. In fact, she lived as, about as far away from the East Coast as you can still be American. Um, and so, and she uh, had a, uh, a, common, a common touch. I mean, that was clear in the reaction to her from so many Republican voters. Um, it was electric. Um, and so I think she was kind of a precursor uh, to what came down the pike with Trump. And, you know, the, the recent death of Herman Cain reminded me that in many ways, Herman Cain was also a premonition of what was happen, happening. Because, um, you know, for, for a while there, Herman 
Cain was riding high in 2011. He represented the businessman, the outsider, very conservative man, um, uh, social conservative. Um, remember, you know, remember he talked about uh, the moats to keep out the illegal immigrants and and the electric fences. Okay, where well, where are we headed with this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, of course, his campaign was sidelined with the accusations of sexual harassment in December 2011. And the difference between him and Donald Trump is Donald Trump just pressed ahead when when similar accusations um, were leveled against him. So you're right. So this is a current that's happening uh, for a while. And, you know, um, and it goes to the kind of the roots of American conservatism, which is that it's a dissident movement. It's not a movement. Most conservatives are protecting something. But unfortunately for American conservatives, we the game was almost over by the time that we emerged as a movement because progressivism and liberalism had captured the, the, the universities, the media, um, large swaths of the government. People just thought like you know um, thought lib- liberally um, in the government. So we've always kind of been a movement of protest, uh, and that adds to its populist. Uh, flavor. Um, but but so, yes, I, so the global financial crisis, the reaction to the war in Iraq, I think was very important in creating this new populist nationalist um, movement, which you also saw, uh, I think, in the Tea, tea Party. I think people misread, uh, people including me, misread the Tea Party, though I could, I, I wrote at the time that the Tea Party was more complicated than, than people thought. It had a, it had a more conspiracy-minded side to it. Um, a lot of conservative intellectuals interpreted the Tea Party as a um, kind of a constitutional conservative force, which it was, which it was, there's no question about it, but it was also one that uh, the Tea Party's definition of elites included conservative elites, right? So that's the thing that the conservative intellectuals didn't realize is that they, according to the Tea Party, they were part of the problem too, you know, and, and this has led to their estrangement uh, from the movement that they that they helped bring into being um, at the moment. I, once upon a time, as a spokesman for the Chicago Tea Party and can attest to the complicated nature, A, and to how, you know, aside from hearing a lot about Barack Obama at the time, the vitriol directed at Republicans and conservative intellectuals, really the elite in Washington and New York really was the thing I heard probably second most. Um, so yeah, I, I, I can completely understand what you're saying there. Um, one thing that seems to be different now with this current populist nationalist conservative movement is the rise of illiberalism. And, you know, in a way, what you just mentioned about the, how progressivism had kind of captured the entire apparatus of the state and culture and we tend to use still liberal interchangeably with progressive while at the same time having this growing. So it, in a sense, in that sense, the conservative movement being anti-liberal would make complete sense 50 years ago. Um, but now we're kind of getting into these proper, almost more European definitions of liberalism. And there is a decided strain within this conservative movement that is illiberal or anti-liberal. Where do you think this is coming from? Were there always of undercurrents of this in the previous incarnations of the right, or is this a, a new phenomenon? It's not new. Um, the, I think um, the, if you look to the Southern agrarians um, in the 1930s, 
um, uh, to the um, publication. Many the agrarians created many publications, but one they wrote for was called the American Review, which was published by this kind of literateur named Seward Collins. Collins was uh, a monarchist and ended up a fascist. Uh, the agrarians weren't quite there. Uh, you know, they they believed in um they believed in certain forms of constitutionalism. Um, but they also were very much anti-modern in the sense that they thought that the North represented the triumph of modernity and industrial capitalism um, and uh, democracy and, uh, you know, that is majoritarian rule. Um, and these were all things that the agrarians blanched at. So this is a movement that, you know, is um, almost 100 years old. And you see it again, I think, in some of the debates between Buckley and his brother-in-law, Brent Bozell, um, surrounding the creation of triumph magazine and Bozell's kind of vector of um, intellectual de development, you know, going from being the ghostwriter of uh, Barry Goldwater's Conscience of a Conservative, which is really the ur-text, if you will, of what is called fusionist conservative mm -hmm. conservatism or the mainstream of American conservative conservatism for most of the last century. Um, going from there to going to real kind of questioning the foundations of the American Republic as ill-founded, ill um, supporting kind of Spanish monarchism and the Carlista movement. Um, so that was 60s, 70s. Um, and so you see it, so you see it uh, in, um, I think, some of the writings of a few of the uh, so-called paleoconservative intellectuals, especially the um, kind of this, the theorist uh, Samuel Francis, uh, who felt that, um, you know, in a lot of ways, American democracy was uh, just a misnomer, that, we, that, it, that constitutionalism, liberalism, these were all outmoded things. And so he advocated a, a national populist strategy of politics. Um, and so it is, it's definitely been part of, I think, the um, intellectual currents on, on the American right for a long time. Um, What's happened now is there's no uh, there's no countervailing forces uh, to to push against it um, because so many of the uh, basically the legitimating institutions of the American right are considered by large numbers of national populists or conservatives themselves to be illegitimate and corrupt um, and so there's this uh, you also have a president who. Well, I think that if you told Donald Trump, um, you know, we really need to look at medieval forms of political allegiance, he would look at you like you're a crazy person. Nonetheless, he he, he kind of um, allows space for a wide variety of political thought that was not um, that was not mainstream. Uh, prior to prior to his rise, um, and so uh, it's a combination of factors. Not only the um, kind of dislocations within the the um, institutional foundations of the American right, not only Donald Trump, but then also I think with um, uh, conservative Catholics in particular, a real sense of cultural despair and loss. Uh, because of certain decisions by the Supreme Court, as well as just certain changes in American culture and popular culture, um, a, a sense of uh, cultural despair that is leading them to um, 
reconsider um, not only kind of uh, this mainstream conservatism, but also um, the America itself. So you identify that what I guess would be the Catholic integralist critique of all of this, which I, you know, from my own personal perspective and as someone working at the Acton Institute, find um, somewhat fascinating that it seems to be a very small movement, but with quite enormous aspirations that this idea that you can have kind of a confessional state is in America. Um, I, I've always told my Catholic integralist friends that, you know, if I were even to agree that there's the possibility of there being a religiously infused state in the in the United States of America, it's probably going to be Protestant, not Catholic, given the makeup of the country. Um, is is it that cultural despair you think that primarily drives all of that? Um, you know, you hear often the critique of what is conservatism conserved. And I guess to me, the problem there is, well, how again are we defining conservatism here? If you're defining conservatism the way that I generally always have, and I, I think you do as well, um, of conserving the American founding to the greatest extent we can, then, you know, sure, I think we've conserved quite a lot. And there's quite a lot as well that we can disagree with and think that needs change or improvement or places where we have gone wrong. If the idea is to conserve something that predates the American founding, well, that seems to be a more salient critique, even if it's one that I think I dissent from. Right. I mean, this is a question that each conservative has to answer. Um, what are what are we attempting to conserve? And I, I am... I agree with you. Uh, for me, as an American conservative, what the uh, adjective really matters. It's, it's conserving the institutions and principles of the America of the American founding. That's that's the point uh, for me. Um, now, uh, Robert Nisbet, who uh, the late sociologist who I've done quite a bit of research on, you know, he would say that you may you're a conservative because you want to conserve kind of historically formed. In social institutions, in the European context, that's th that is things like the class structure, or the monarchy, or the uh, established churches. In America, um, we have governmental institutions, so we have the Constitution, the principles, of the Declaration of Independence. That's kind of what you and I are talking about conserving. But we also do have historically formed social institutions. They're just part of civil society. So we have the family. We have churches, we have neighborhoods, and we have um, voluntary associations. I do feel conservatives, um, American conservatives, have done a poor job of conserving those four things. Okay, and I think the reason we, that that is is because the American conservative movement has been primarily a intellectual and political movement. It has not been a movement in civil society, and you and the. The movements in civil society have tended to be grassroots driven. Um, they've been partly successful. One education reform, I think, has been pretty successful. But, but in terms of the American family, um, which is in many ways the most important social institution, um, we cannot say that we've been successful uh, because <laughs> because the American family is in a pretty pretty bad place. Um, uh, so I think a lot of conservative. Uh, religious conservatives look at that. They're 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 looking at those institutions. They're looking at family, uh, the health of religion in society. They're looking at neighborhoods. What do we mean by neighborhoods or small towns? 
um, and they're looking at voluntary associations, kind of, you know, church, church raisings, you know, barn raisings. Um, and there, I think they have a lot of legitimate complaint. Now, to go from that point to then say that America itself is ill-founded and corrupt and we need to reconsider uh, anti-constitutional politics, uh, that I can't go. I will never go there. Right. Um, but I do think there, the, we look at these historically formed social formations and we have to we have to really commit ourselves to to um, to trying to renew them as conservatives, um, because at the end of the day, they are they are the bedrock of society as we understand it. Um, and so I think that kind of the sense of despair, that looking at what's happened to the family, looking at kind of the uh, the uh, very unusual developments in American religion, kind of the rise of the. N-O-N-E-S's, the nuns, you know, um, disaffiliate, religious disaffiliation, lower rates of church attendance. Uh, 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 I think if you look at the millennial um, and Zoomers, you, you see um, also a change in the attitude toward religion. Um, one where the millennials and, and Zoomers, um, large numbers of them, which is unusual, for when compared with other generations, large numbers of these cohorts look at religion as a force of intolerance and a repression. And um, you have to, so you have to begin to wonder, okay, how, how do we fix this? So there are various strategies, but um, well, the Roger strategy is, well, let's drop out. Let's drop out and form our cult, counterculture, do what we can to kind of preserve our, our way of life. Um, and then there's, um, you know, then there's kind of the Deneen strategy, which is more, I think, a, a more a critique than it is a plan, though I understand that he's working on another uh, follow-up that, that may be more um, uh, propositional or at least kind of more uh, kind of this is what we should do. And then finally, there's kind of the Vermule Amari type strain, which is, uh, well, the reason we've got into this place is li- political liberalism. Um, not the liberalism of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, but the liberalism of John Locke mm-hmm. and Thomas Hobbes. And we therefore need to uh, begin to uh, pursue anti-liberal strategies or think outside um, that kind of, that framework. Um, uh, procedural, I think the phrase, you know, procedural uh, norms, or I forget exactly what it is in Amari, one of Amari's essays, but it's, um, uh, it's you know, it, and it, when we were in grade school, this would be called thinking outside the box. Yes, really, <laughs> that's what really it is. It's think it's definitely thinking outside the box. The previous incarnations of conservatism seem to accept evolved change through market processes, the Schumpeterian creative destruction that comes with free markets and with capitalism. Uh, do you think the current nationalist populist conservative movement is still accepting of that? Uh, are these things still compatible with this new brand of conservatism? Well, I think uh, one thing everyone, every analyst needs to do is um, separate what goes on online from what is actually going on in America. And I do think that if you look at the discussion online, it would appear that, oh my gosh, we're going to have an integralist America in, you know, in my lifetime. Twitter is not reality though. All the young people online, all the people who are interested in ideas, um, it seems to me, are definitely moving toward these, um, uh, National pop, not only national populist, but uh, but even deeper critiques of America and Western civilization. 
I don't necessarily think that's the reality. I think when you actually poll Republican voters, uh, who would be the core of any of this, um, what you find is more or less just what you expect, the socially conservative, um, pro-business, uh, pro-market, um, supportive of Donald Trump, but also, you know, kind of leery of Donald Trump a lot of the time and wish just wish he would tweet less. And mm-hmm. gosh, does he have to do these things that, you know, with these unforced errors? So the discussions are very different. And I even think among younger conservatives, um, you find a great variety. Like I say, there are plenty of young conservatives, young social conservatives in particular, who are very much attracted to these ideas because they, to them, are new ideas and they're exciting ideas and they're radical ideas. And if you're young, you you like radical ideas. Um, But in terms of actual millennial Americans or Zoomers who are in the right, I don't know if that's really their, um, the reason they get up in the morning or the reason that they're thinking of voting Republican. Many of them might like Donald Trump. There are many who don't and think that, well, Trump is just a phase or just a kind of a hiccup of history. And, and there will be a, a right that's more um, in the Reaganite tradition, say, uh, that follows him. Um, we really don't know. Um, but I, I, I think, I think just for the health of the American right, it needs to be American. It, it needs, to, it needs to focus on what makes America unique because, you know, I think we still are a pretty patriotic country. People just, people understand the American idea differently. The left tends to focus on the equality, Right. The right tends to focus on the liberty, but it's still within that framework of the American idea. You can argue over the American idea. Once you start abandoning the American idea, I think that you, you're going to have a lot of trouble um, being an um, influential voice in the American conversation. Um, and let's not forget, the right uh, was not influential in any sphere of life for, for decades, right? Um, it took a lot of sustained effort on the part of uh, William F. Buckley Jr. and his colleagues to, to legitimize the right in the eyes of America's American elites. And uh, from my perspective, that effort is at risk of being um, wasted in the coming years and, and, and having the American right going back to kind of its, its origins, which were on the sidelines of uh, the American conversation. Does that necess- uh, necessitate a willingness to I guess, back away in some sense from the anti-elitism and be willing to engage in those elite cultural institutions and with other cultural elites? Because you know, Buckley with Firing Line, with National Review, it was, I think it, I heard you in the interview with Jonah Goldberg talk about this, that it very much is pitched at elites and go back to what we were saying about the tea party where there very much is a departure from even caring about elite institutions or uh, cultural elites at all. That's a problematic, um, uh, approach these days because one, because, um, I'm not sure Buckley would be given the hearing, um, that he was given in some of these institutions you mentioned. When Buckley wrote, got a man at Yale, 
in the first phase of his career. I mean, he was uh, Tyro. He was he was definitely anti elitist, um, but he was a, kind of this insider outsider because he was coming from within the institutions, um, and he came from money. You know, his his father was was wealthy um, from oil, um, uh, but because of his weird mix of personal influences, you know, he was, he was Catholic, he was Southern because both of his parents were Southern, even though he grew up in Connecticut and went to school overseas and had that strange accent. Um, so he was, he was in, but not of, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, these institutions. And so he was, you know, he was attacked, um, uh, vociferously in the pages of the Atlantic monthly for writing this book, uh, on Yale and, uh, and then, of course, he, his follow-up is defending Joe McCarthy. You know, I mean, if you want, if you want to be controversial, defend Joe McCarthy to this sure. day. You know, um, so we, he nonetheless felt that, and this was really the influence of James Burnham. I think he nonetheless felt that for American conservatism to be successful, it would have to appeal to basically the graduates of the Ivy League the people who would go on to uh, important roles in business and in, um, uh, in media, in politics, maybe even the university itself. Though, like I say, by 1951, Buckley was saying that the university was a lost cause that it's, you know, 60 some years later now. Um, I, I don't know whether that's possible today. I really don't because you have no entree into these institutions. I mean, the, um, the uh, the John Shields book about um, about professors on the right and how how small they are and how how their numbers are just uh, incredibly vanishingly small and there is a culture of fear I think on a lot of campuses especially among young faculty that if they s- say what they think uh, they will be um, hounded out of the institution. Um, media is the same way. I mean, there's just no. If you consider the Barry Weiss resignation, uh-huh. look at what's happened to Andrew Sullivan, who's not, I mean, he's, he, Andrew thinks he's a conservative, sure, okay, um, but he's definitely not a, you know, unorthodox, orthodox uh, progressive, yeah. put it that way, right? You know, um, he felt he had to leave New York magazine. Um, it'd be, it'd be hard. It would really be hard. Um, uh, so, so I think I think there's new strategies have to be have to be thought out. One part, you know, um, conservatives have done a pretty good job of creating counter institutions and um, a counterculture. I was just going to ask that: is that how how much of the environment do you attribute to uh, what I think we can all recognize as the hostility of the modern American left to you know again to a lot of Buckley references here, but you know, the, the left claims that they want to hear other views and then are shocked and appalled to find out that there are other views. How much of it is that kind of hostility from the American left in these institutions to anybody being outside of the way they think? And how much of it is kind of a conservative abandonment of the institutions to say, we're going to build our own, we're going to build our Hillsdale colleges. We're going to establish our own media enterprises. Um, what do you think the balance is between those two? Uh, well, I think the liberal intolerance came first. Uh, I do. And I felt, uh, you know, and especially if you think about the growth of think tanks uh, in the in kind of this, you know, 70s and 80s, a lot of that was just academics who could not 
stay in the university setting. They're just tired of it. They just, it just couldn't persist. Um, so I do think that came first. Um, the, the interesting thing about these counter institutions is they don't really have much of a social base. So they're not, I mean, there's the, there's the, um, religious new right, which has a large social base, you know, and still does. But once beyond that, you don't, you know, you don't get, I think, um, what the Marxists would call class consciousness about, you know, for people who are, you know, uh, tied to a specific institution. For example, that um, unions, take unions, or take, don't take public sector unions, because those are never going to go for an American right that is just by its nature skeptical of government. But but trades unions, you know, uh, for various reasons, the um, American conservative movement never tried to appeal um, to, to this to these groups. But if you were able to, um, you would have had a solid institutional base. You would have gotten to know people, you know, actual working people. Um, and by the way, these people these trades unionists that I'm saying, they tend, sometimes they voted Republican. So they voted for Ronald Reagan. Those are the Reagan Democrats. They voted for Donald Trump, you know. Um, that type of strategy, I think, is worth, is worth thinking about, especially if we're, if we're concerned about the, wealth, uh, the health of civil society. If people on the right tend to disinclude the unions in our definition of civil society, primarily because we are thinking of the public sector unions. Um, but also because, you know, the American right um, has long been committed to um, um, a kind of an anti-union right-to-work uh, agenda. One final question. So as you've identified these four American rights, and we talked a little about the transition periods in between them, were there any signs of the transition between the old right of the progressive era into the anti-statist, anti-communist, and that those evolutions? And if there are, do you see anything out there right now that gives you an indication of where you think the conservative movement might be going in the future if it were to evolve beyond the nationalist populist right that exists now into something else? Uh, well, you know, one thing that happens in these transitions is kind of the introduction of a, of a new coterie or network of um, right-leaning thinkers. So if you think about the difference between right, you mentioned the old right, and that's what it was. It was the anti-statist, anti-interventionist right. To this day, the partisans of the old right are, are very hostile toward National Review because National Review was mainly staffed by ex-communists. <laughs> Okay, um, and they came. These ex-communists kind of came into the American right, and even then, a hundred years ago, they were viewed as interlopers. You know, mm-hmm. the James Burnham, Frank Meyer, um, the two key influences on on William F. Buckley Jr. Wilmer Kendall. It's unclear whether he was actually a Trotskyist when he was in Spain um, in the 1930s, but he was on the left, and uh, you know for sure. And then he becomes Buckley's teacher at Yale and his mentor until they had multiple falling outs. But um, so so that happens. So that's the transition between the first and second. And then if you think about the transition between the second and third, there's another group, and these are the neoconservatives. These are the um, the Democrats uh, who or 
the first neoconservatives were, were actual members of the, of the radical left who, who became more conservative. But then you had a second wave of neocons who were basically Cold War liberals who, just, who switched their affiliation, moved to the right. And that changed the inflection, right? Uh, so, you know, when I look out at the intellectual scene today, I see uh, the person that I'm most fascinated with is Thomas Chatterton Williams, uh, because uh, one is, I read his first book a few years ago, I thought it was excellent. And I've been reading him ever since. And I've just kind of noticed, it's fascinating to watch how he's like, slowly going down a, this path, a path that I went down, you know, and, and it kind of will take you to a situation, might not be on the, you might not think of yourself as on the right, but um, it's definitely critical of, of liberalism and progressivism and, and radicalism. Mm-hmm. Um, so if there were, a, if there was a critical mass of individuals like uh, Chatterton, uh, Williams, um, then that might, that might change, uh, the right. But at the moment, I, I don't see, um, I don't see the American right going in a different direction for a few reasons. One, I mean, one is just the, it's, it's a secular trend, which is the Republican party has been growing more working class every year and more reliant on voters without college degrees. And, this is going to continue, I think, for the foreseeable future. And that lends itself just to a national populism. Two is there is a lot of incentives to um, the type of concert to maintain the type of American right we have now. There are a lot of just structural incentives. And um, and it's unclear whether those will those will change. And then, then there's always the influence of the, of the president himself. And even if the president were to lose the election um, in 2020, uh, I still think he will exercise some some degree of influence on the developments in the Republican Party and on the American right. Uh, since you mentioned Thomas Chatterton Williams, uh, real quick before we end here, and are there any other particularly interesting um, thinkers or writers out there that you would point people to? Uh, in kind of in that same vein of, you know, if they are in the vanguard of uh, something coming in the future, anyone in addition to Thomas Chatterton Williams? From someone who's coming from a left liberal um, perspective, um, you know, there's this political scientist named James Lindsay who um, who co-wrote a book on on theory on with capital T uh, that Andrew Sullivan writes quite a bit about. I mean, he seems interesting. Uh, you know, I, I like it. This is the problem: is that it's not clear, you know, who the who the members of this of this new network are. You know, and, and like I say, that you know the the Yasha Monk uh, publication, Persuasion, which I mm-hmm. think Thomas Chatterton Williams is associated with, that is definitely not a right wing publication. Um, and so it may it may be that they're just they won't that that the term conservative is so delegitimized in the eyes of America's elites, um, uh, or that is non-conservative elites, that this won't be able to adopt it. And, you know, people forget Irving Kristol was unique in that he said, fine, call me a neoconservative. You know, his friends, Nathan Glazer, Daniel Bell, who were part of that first wave of kind of um, skeptical, melioristic approach. Um, approaches to public policy 
both of them were always uncomfortable with with the label neoconservative. And Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was also part of that group, he eventually abandoned it altogether and, and became kind of just a reflexive liberal Democrat, um, at least in his um, votes in the Senate. Uh, so there's always going to be some discomfort. Um, but I guess my answer to your question is, I, I don't really see a critical mass developing right now. I think I think the current uh, structure of the right is um, is going to be here for for a while yet. Matthew Continetti is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and was the founding editor and editor in chief of the Washington Free Beacon. Matt, thank you uh, so much for joining us today on Act in Line. Thanks for having me. As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our team loves putting this show together for you every week, and it's so encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can reach our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, for Act in Line, I'm Eric Cohn.